do you keep a to-do list? Perhaps it's just a note on the refrigerator door or a notepad on your desk, or maybe you use a fancy phone app. I remember back in the day that uh, I had one of those uh, day timers, if you remember those, big thick notebook, and it had everything in it. I just crammed it so full of stuff, and, and I called it my life. And it was only half a joke. And, and the couple of times that I left it somewhere or lost it, you know, it was terrifying because everything was in it. It's kind of like losing your phone today. You have anything like that? These days, I don't have the day timer anymore. I just ask my wife to remember something for me. And that way, if she forgets, I can just blame her. But no matter what kind of to-do list that you keep, Things just keep piling up, right? Emails keep arriving, people keep calling, the grass keeps growing, the kids keep screaming, laundry keeps getting dirty, deadlines keep looming, and it's this constant cacophony of do, do, do. Rarely do you ever get to that point where you could just kind of kick back, put your feet up, grab a cold one, and say, done. And even when those moments do come, by the time the game or the show is over, you've got five more things on your to-do list. And it can feel very much the same way in our spiritual lives and uh, our relationship with Jesus. Our faith can feel like one well, long to-do list. We're serving in two or three different ministries at church. There's that that person that we hurt last week with some careless words, and we need to apologize to them. There's the new guy at work that, well, it's pretty obvious that he's going through some rough times, and we're just looking for the right opportunity to talk to them. Then there's that thing with our, our spouse that we've been meaning to talk about, but I just don't know how to start the conversation. I can't find the right words to say, and, and I can feel things slipping in my spiritual life. I've been losing my patience a lot and, and getting angry and, and I've been stretching the truth a little bit and well and I know I should read my bible a lot more than I do and well it becomes this treadmill of do 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 now for some of us this uh in our relationship with Jesus um we want to follow Jesus. We want to love him. We want to have this relationship with him. But it feels like we've started off in this deep hole. All right. And no matter how much we try to climb out of that hole, no matter how much dirt we try to fill in that hole, it just keeps getting deeper. All right. Failure layers upon failure. One bad decision leads to three more. And we feel like we can never get to that point that well, Jesus would never want to have a relationship with us. I mean, no matter how much we do, it is never enough. Well, it's Easter weekend, and I've got some bad news, and I've got some good news. And the bad news is this. No matter how much you do, it is never enough. Right? You can do and do and do some more, but you will never catch up. You will never get ahead. It'll never be good enough. This is something that the prophet Isaiah realized 2,700 years ago. He writes in Isaiah 64, 5, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. 
Now, the prophet here is comparing our spiritual selves, all right, our hearts, our souls, with the skin of a leper, right? someone whose skin is, is covered with, with sores and boils and, and peeling skin. And they have to go around and they have to tell anyone who comes near, unclean, unclean, all right? Don't touch me. Don't even come close. And if there was a, a camera that could capture a shot of your spiritual self, that's what it would look like. And it's not just the failures and mistakes, right? It's all of the on purposes, you know, the things that we deliberately do. Those things that we intentionally do, even though we know we shouldn't do them. The hateful and, and hurtful words that spill from our lips, right? We know we shouldn't say them, but we say them anyway. The little lies that stab like a thousand needles, the exaggerations that inflate our pride like a helium birthday balloon. It, it's all of those kinds of things. The the outbursts of anger that, that go off like a shotgun, right? hitting everyone in the blast radius. It's the lust that causes us to, to use another human being as just an object to satisfy our own personal pleasures. Our uncleanness um, is also the things that we willfully don't do, even though we know we should. Right? Like the little kid, whose mom tells him to go clean his room, and he said, campers off, okay, mommy, and he goes off to his room and then plays with his Legos. It's the person in need that, that God has placed in our path. And then, like those people with the upturned noses and Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, we walk on by. Those times that we should have opened our mouths. We should have said something, but instead, we keep them zipped. James 4.17 declares, anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And there's that word that the Bible uses to describe this whole mess, sin. To miss the mark, right? To not measure up, to fall short. And we fall short of the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the perfection that is our God. And we fall so far short that, that we are hopelessly separated from our creator. And here's, here's how bad the problem is. Isaiah says that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Right? So he's saying that even the good things that we do are tainted. Right? They're, they're tainted with selfishness. I hope somebody sees me serving. I hope I get credit for this. They're tarnished by pride. Look how generous I am. So even the best things we do are polluted. Like, well, not just dirty laundry, it's even worse. You have that favorite blouse or favorite pair of pants and they get stained. And no matter how many times you wash them, no matter how much you scrub, no matter how much OxyClean you use on those, that stain isn't coming out, right? And so now they're useful for nothing but maybe mowing the lawn in them, but who would mow their lawn in the, in the nice blouse? That would look stupid. And Isaiah says, that's, that's how even our best actions, the best words are. Now, that's the bad news. No matter how much we do, it's never 
enough. We just, we can't undo all of that. But I've got some good news for you this Easter, and I mean some really good news. It doesn't matter how much you do because it's already been done. You don't have to do it all because Jesus has already done it all. Now, we're in the middle of this series called Greater Than, where we're talking about uh, 10 things that are truly greater than. We're looking at 10 spiritual equations that, that equal true joy. And so it's Easter Sunday, and this is the perfect greater than for Easter Sunday. And it's this, that done is greater than do. Done is greater than do. The Apostle John includes, I think, a very interesting detail about the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and if you, if you take all of the Gospels and put their accounts together, you can kind of get a timeline of everything that happens. Now, Matthew tells us that, that before he gave up his spirit, that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Mark says that he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. But I think John fills in the missing detail of what it was that Jesus yelled out in that final moment, or at least something he said before that happened. And here's what we read in John 19, beginning with verse 28. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I want you to focus on those three words, it is finished. There's three simple words in the English, but in the Greek that Jesus spoke, it's it's one word. So picture Jesus up there on that cross. And, and, and almost everything that, that, that happens during his crucifixion, it's already transpired. He's beaten, battered, bloodied. His, his, his life energy is just about gone. But in this one final moment, he summons all the last remaining strength that he has to yell out this one final proclamation, one word, to telestai, to telestai. Now, Jesus made seven statements from the cross, but this is the last, and I believe the greatest of these statements. And I love how Charles Spurgeon describes all of the meaning contained in this one word. He says, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all of the other words that ever were spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. This is the royal dish in the feast of love. It is finished. Now that is only one way to translate this word. It means to finish, to complete, to accomplish. In a military sense, it would be mission accomplished. Jesus achieved every objective that he set out to complete when he was born as a baby, born in a manger. 
right? Not one item on his checklist left unchecked, nothing undone, nothing dropped from the agenda. He finished every single bit of his purpose. Now, it is finished, looks all the way back to when the serpent first tempted Adam and Eve to, to eat of the forbidden fruit. And you remember when God confronted them, one of the things that God said, he, he foretold that, that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Well, here he is, Jesus, the seed of the woman, saying, it is finished. It's done. All of the expectation, all of the anticipation of dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of prophets over hundreds of years, are all fulfilled in Jesus. He did it all. And, and those prophets, they sacrificed so much. They suffered so much, all because they just had this glimpse of what was to come. But now it's finished. No more waiting, no more longing, no more hoping. It is finished, Jesus says. You don't have to do it because it is done. Now, tetelestai was also an accounting term. It was used in the business world to signify the full payment of a debt. All right, so say you went down to the local dealership. You, you bought a brand new donkey and a cart on credit. Right, and you're paying on that new donkey and cart every month until finally you make that last payment. And then the dealer hands you a, a piece of parchment. And, and on that parchment is the bill for your new donkey and cart. But at the bottom, stamped on it in big red letters is tetelestai, which means paid in full. Right? You own it free and clear. Well, that's what Jesus has done for you. Your debt has been paid in full. As far as God is concerned, when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your debt's paid. You don't owe him a thing. You've got nothing to make up for. Right? So many people think, well, I can't have a relationship with God. Not until I take care of this problem, I get this straightened out, and, and this is no longer an issue. But if God has this list in heaven, of all the things that you have to get straightened out before you can have a relationship with him. Do you know what's on that list? <laughs> you know how many things there are that still have to get checked off? None. Zip, zilch, zero, nada. Why? Because it's already D-O-N-E. It is finished, paid in full. You know, think about a moment in your life where Maybe you made that final payment on your house, all right, or that last payment on a car. I remember the first car we bought, you used to get these little coupon books, and you'd have a little coupon for each payment, and you, you finally ripped that last one out of the book, and it felt so good when you, you sent it in, or that, that last check you ever had to pay on your student loan debt. I'm free. It, it felt wonderful. Well, you take that feeling and you multiply it by a million. That's what Jesus did for you on the cross because it is a debt that you could never pay. But somebody loved you enough to pay you for it. Here's the problem that, that we have this morning is that we have a hard time believing in the gospel of done. We believe, well, it's finished except for this, 
or surely Jesus wasn't talking about that problem. It didn't include that. Here, here are some things that keep us from believing in the gospel of done. Uh, number one, an accusing conscience. Now, God created us with a, an inner voice to help guide us in right and wrong. And, and that's what we call our conscience. And this is what helps you feel good when you do the right thing, and it needles you with guilt when you do the wrong thing. Now, a healthy conscience can drive you to make good decisions, protect you from bad decisions, and it can help you right wrong, seek repentance, and reconcile relationships when things do go wrong. All right, guilt in the right time and in the right place can be a very healthy and positive thing. There are a lot of voices in our world that will tell you that guilt is always a bad thing. It's always a negative thing, and that's not true. The problem is, is that our consciences can become miscalibrated. They can become, well, on the one end, far too sensitive, registering guilt for things that were never wrong or they were never our fault or for wrongs long forgiven, right? God has forgiven us. The other person has forgiven us, but we still blame ourselves. We still feel shame and we can't accept that forgiveness. Our consciences can also have their, their volume knobs right, turned all the way down where they're of no use or cranked all the way to 11 where you can never hear the grace and mercy of our God because the decibels of our shame is just too loud. And so when this happens, all you hear from your inner voice is do, 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 but we can never hear Jesus say it is done. The literary giant Samuel Johnson, whom according to the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations is the second most quoted Englishman. Listen to what he wrote in his daily journal. He says, I have now spent 55 years in resolving, having from the earliest time, almost that I can remember, been forming schemes of a better life. I have done nothing. The need of doing is therefore pressing since the time of doing is short. Oh, God, grant me the resolve, a right, and to keep my resolutions. Right, this is a voice of a conscience that's saying, do, do, and keep on doing. But it was never enough. It was a constant struggle. Right, do, 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 fail, guilt, shame, remorse. Right? Do more, do harder, more failure, more guilt, more shame, even more doing. We have to recalibrate our consciences according to the grace of God, and we need to hear the words of Jesus from the cross. It is finished, paid in full, done. Now, a second thing that keeps us bogged down in the religion of do rather than believing in the gospel of done is a demanding church, right? The very institution that should be claiming it is finished, all right, the very institution that should be helping people relieve them of their burdens instead lays burdens on their shoulders. Now, sometimes this is unintentional. I mean, as a preacher, I try to preach sermons that are practical as well as, you know, theologically true and biblical, but when you get practical, it tends to focus on do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. 
And this can lead from a very subtle shift away from done to do. Now, don't get me wrong. God cares about what we do. Right? He saved us so that we could do the right thing. But sometimes we get the order backwards. We think he saves us because we do the right things. But too often churches have become well, purposefully demanding. And maybe you grew up in that kind of a church where sermons were guilt trip after guilt trip. Do, do, do. Sermon upon sermon demanding more money, more time, more zeal, more doing. And if you didn't keep up, the shame was shoveled thick and heavy. And so the church has to be careful that all of our shoulds and oughts sail on a river of grace and mercy that flow freely from the cross. <coughs> now, some of our problem with the gospel of done may be inherited from the church, but I think a lot of it is also inherited from our culture. And a third thing that keeps us from believing in the gospel of done is our work for wages culture. And one of the basic rules that, that many of us in America have learned is work equals reward, right? You work and you earn what you get through hard work and, and hard work equals great reward. Do equals dollars. You get what you give. Now, yes, there is such a thing as a biblical work ethic, all right? And, and that's a good thing. Hard work is a good thing. Working hard for your money, that's a good thing, right? Capitalism may not always get it right, but it's the best that we've got. I mean, to plagiarize uh, Churchill, capitalism is the worst form of economics that we've tried, except for all of the others. But this work for wages idea can handicap our, social un uh, our spiritual understanding. Surely God won't reward me for something that I didn't earn. Grace can't be totally free. There has to be a catch. And those of us that have hard work as a core value, we can struggle with this idea of grace. But we've got to understand, though, that, that we can't work hard enough or long enough to be good enough. Right? It's all about the grace of God and Jesus' finished work on the cross. Number four is failure. Right? Sometimes it is difficult to believe that it can be truly finished when we keep failing again and again, even after we believe everything that Jesus did for us. And so we think, well, God might let us into his Christian family through it is finished, but we have to stay in by our own effort, right? It's only fair, isn't it? God, God might let me in the door, but if I if I don't perform once I'm in, I'm going to get thrown out. But grace isn't just about getting in. It's about staying in. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do you hear that? It says that you have been saved by grace through faith. 
It says that it's not of your own undoing. It's not a result of your works. You don't earn it. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a minute there. It says we were created for good works. Ah, yes, we were. But do you realize that our good works that we were created to do are a result, it says, of God's workmanship in us? Right? It's a, God, a result of what God is doing in us, a result of what Jesus has already done. Now, maybe this message is just a, a, a much-needed reminder of something you already know, but hopefully you're hearing it with fresh ears. Or maybe this is the first time you've, you've ever really heard this. All right? it, it hits you like cold water hits the parched lips of someone lost in the desert. Whichever the case, what is needed is that you believe or re-believe in the gospel of done. It is finished. That's the only hope that we have. It is finished isn't something that you come to only once when you come to Jesus, but we come back to it again and again, over and over. Your identity in Christ is not defined by a list of do's and don'ts. You are a son or a daughter of God because of what Jesus has done for you. And the most successful Christian lives are, are those that manage to keep the spotlight on Jesus and what he has done for us, not on all of the do's. And then when we do that, when we build on the foundation of what Jesus has already done, then and only then can we do what he's called us to do. What we do as Christians isn't so much about what we do for him. It's about what we do with him. Well, how do we keep this spotlight on Jesus? How do we keep our spiritual eyes focused in the right place? Faith. It's all about faith. Now, there's multiple words that help us understand what faith is. It is belief. It is trust. It is acceptance. To completely receive what Jesus has done for us and trust that it is enough, and trust that it can change us. And when, it's, when we have that kind of faith and know that it's already finished, it's already paid in full, that done is greater than due, then we find true joy and true peace. A lot of people can never find this peace because they're struggling with 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 fear and guilt and shame and anxiety. And if you go to a secular counselor to help you find peace, they're going to employ one of several popular methods. Some of them are more helpful than others. But at some point in the process, they're likely to tell you, well, you need to empty your mind of fear. You need to empty it of guilt, to empty it of anxiety, to empty it of shame, of regret, and so on. In psychology, these are often called unwanted intrusive thoughts because, well, they're unwanted and they feel intrusive. And so uh, to find peace, we have to somehow put them out of our mind. Just, just empty our mind of these things. But remember, God gave us these feelings for a reason. Guilt has a place and a purpose. One clinical psychologist writing in the Harvard Business Review uh, calls 
this kind of thinking, cognitive errors, right? Distortions in our thinking. When we feel fearful, or we shouldn't feel 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 fearful, we shouldn't feel guilty, we shouldn't feel regret. All right, Th those are errors in your brain. She says instead we need to train our brains to become non-sticky, like our head is some sort of a Teflon skillet. Well, as soon as we find ourselves feeling guilt, shame, anxiety, fear, regret, she says we need to try to distract ourselves for a few minutes. Get your mind off of it. Refocus your attention on something else. She says engage in rigorous physical activity for a few minutes. It distracts you. She actually offers this suggestion. Spend 10 minutes filling out an expense report. Yes, there is the key to spiritual health right there. Is that really the best way of handling these things? Distract, disguise, deny? Just train your brain not to acknowledge them, pretend like they don't exist. But that's like saying, don't think of pink elephants. And then all of a sudden, all you can think of is pink elephants. So many try to empty their minds of these thieves of peace and joy. They fail. Because there's only one thing that can truly remove fear of insecurity, anxiety, regret, and shame, and replace that with true joy and true peace. And it's what Jesus did on the cross, and knowing that it is finished. We can stick our fingers in our ear and tell our guilt over and over again, I can't hear you. We can only do that for so long. But there's only one thing that can erase your guilt, and that's by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, your guilt was paid in full. And we can never do what was already done on the cross. Done is greater than do, and it's already been done. And the great promise of Easter is this, that we can know that what Jesus said is true because he proved it. When he rose again, right, the one who defeated the power of death has the power to take our place in death because he died on the cross. He rose again so that we know that we can live new life. That is the message, and that is the miracle of Easter. Happy Easter.